Hi, this is Bruce Lipton, and you're listening to Green Planet FM. Kia ora, greetings, and welcome to Green Planet FM 104.6. I'm Tim Lynch, and I trust that you are doing well. I invite you to stay with me over the next hour as we discuss and find ways to take care of our unique and magnificent green planet Earth. Today we're on the threshold of a new paradigm, which many of the global population are just not aware of. This in many ways is due to local and global media continuing to distract us so that we're kept constantly on edge, wondering what is going to happen in political and economic events or what other sensational occurrences that are happening in the so-called world hotspots. And then, with the added diversion of a warm fuzzy or a successful New Zealander or New Zealand team winning a race or a match or breaking a world record, or worse, a macabre event that is afflicting a global celebrity. Another reason is that we have forgotten where our breath comes from, how our rain cycles through our lives, and how our food chain actually came into being. We have lost our recollection of our roots to the distant past. Meanwhile, our intrepid planet sails on through time and space around the sun, the centre of our localised system, with very few realising that our magnificent, life-sustaining, living, homeostatic mother planet is doing for us. And without any focus or reverential headlines to remind us of our journey or the perspective that we all live on the side of our planet, we have en masse forgotten our roots, the quintessential source from which we spring. And as we endeavour to awaken from our amnesia, our forgetfulness, we instead find that indigenous peoples are stirring because they feel a perturbance in the web of life that has been the sustainer of beauty and of the biosphere and that of our natural inheritance. Yes, we are so immersed in day-to-day events, it is now imperative that we take time out to reflect on who we are. Fortunately, I have met a good number of people who are not so enamoured with the carryings-on of the outside world, that they are prepared to close their eyes and still themselves and breathe deeply into their being to make the connection of how we came into being at a quantum level to be on this journey of life. They are meditating on solutions to the many challenges that surround us. When we breathe deeply into our abdomen, we connect with our navel, our belly button, and that which connects us to our mother and her mother and her mother before that. Back through the family tree and down through our whakapapa, back through the sacred feminine and down through the lineage of species and further until we come to a molten and gaseous mass of an early forming Mother Earth, the sustainer of all life. Yes, it is from this conglomeration of cosmic stardust that has been the crucible of life, that over four and a half billion years has enabled we humans to emerge out of her mineralized and gaseous body to now walk upon her surface and to be able to even jump away from her 
into the air for a few seconds. And over the last 110 years, manufacture machines to finally fly above her. In doing so, we have now built rockets and have been into outer space now for 50 years, looking back in at the fair face of Mother Earth to see her in her balanced and delicate wholeness. Also, from this advantage point, we are witnessing the degradation and abuse that we are handing out to this magnificence and what we draw sustenance from. So what do you think is going to be the outcome of our collective future? Will we awaken in time? A question that I've been asking myself for 37 years. Listen in at any schoolyard and hear the children playing, hear the laughter, yelling, shrieks of delight as little ones living to their heart's content. So how can we enable a new paradigm of peace and freedom, prosperity and ecological balance, and especially the ordered splendor of a revitalized biosphere transiting to a new sphere that at heart, where all peoples can enter a new realm of higher consciousness and connection. In the studio this morning, I have Jonathan Everett, who has had a lifetime dedicated to exploring the ancient wisdom and traditions of a wide range of spiritual, ethnological and philosophical paradigms. From this, he's recognised and distilled what he came to realise as the wisdom of the heart of the essential spirit of man. This journey has culminated in intensive training with a spiritual teacher from Colombia who works very closely with the elders of the Kogi Mamas. The Mamas are the ancient priesthood of the descendants of the Tirona civilization that once spanned much of South and Central America. What Jonathan has found is that Kogi Mamas embody and live by what they call the original knowledge of the Divine Mother, given to spirit of man at the beginning of time. Kia ora, Jonathan. Kia ora, Tim. It's good to be here. Jonathan, the Divine Mother, I find that very interesting because we've been brought up mainly in a patriarchal world and here we have an indigenous peoples very focused on the Divine Mother. Could you explain a little about the Divine Mother to our listeners? Certainly. As far as I can ascertain, around the world, the understanding and the appreciation of the Divine Mother was, was across the board. It was a pandemic philosophy and understanding and approach to life itself. And over a number of thousands of years, that has essentially been weeded out and pulled out and eliminated from the cultural framework of how most cultures live now, particularly our Western culture. I mean, one sign of that or one result of that was the systematic killing and annihilation of millions of women across Europe to remove that knowledge, this wisdom of the earth. So in all traditions, the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians, throughout Asia, throughout India, the Maori people of New Zealand, all through Polynesia, all through the Americas, there was an understanding that we essentially derive everything that we experience and that we embody, including our bodies and all matter, which itself comes from the Greek word mater, which is mother. So there's the recognition that this is all of the mother, that in all these cultures, there was this understanding that that's what feeds us, nourishes us, holds us, and sustains us. Within the Kogi tradition, they appreciate that the divine force, if we call it that, expresses itself in two primary expressions. One of those is what we can identify as masculine, the divine father element. The other is what we can identify as feminine, the divine mother. For them, 
to try and access the divine and be in a relationship with the divine without the divine mother is pointless she's the one that's all around us we're in her realm it's her womb her cosmic womb that, that all life has emerged out of so she's the most intimate contact we have with the divine and in a sense what they see in the records which we can get into later of humanity is that part of the motivation of removing an appreciation and a direct relationship with the divine mother out of the human understanding and the human experience it set us up to be in a situation where our fundamental need this fundamental urge that we have inside to connect with something bigger than ourselves with a divine origin that we emerge from we can't get rid of that but we can hijack it we can undermine it and by focusing that entirely on this patriarchal perception of things on purely the masculine side of things one of the effects of that is it actually gives us a spirituality that's essentially disenfranchised it's disconnected from life itself so it appeals to us on some level but it's a bit like in a family unit it's the mother that you have contact with it's the mother whose womb you're gestating in for nine months it's her breast that you feed from for a year or two if you're lucky it's her that's there when you hurt yourself when you need things and so on the father's more in the distance the role of the father is just as essential but it's the role that's out in the distance very profound because we are all born of a mother and yet as a whole human race it's all gone lopsided uh-huh. and the imperative to acknowledge that and say our connections our umbilical cord and even the maori followed the umbilical cord all the way back following the whakapapa through the mother it's still a patriarchal society in many ways so there's a big change happening now there's a whole new influx of energy and of course new zealand in many ways helped start that in 1893 when the emancipation of women when women got the vote after all this time Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm. allow them to have a say in existence and to contribute to society from a nurturing point of view and it's time has come hasn't it yes and it's interesting to note that my own observation from a spiritual perspective is that new zealand itself that role in the world of pioneering and pushing through into another paradigm another way of doing things another way of essentially relating to to life itself and in some of the things such as what you've just mentioned with women's right to vote and so on those are just some of the indicators of of that mechanism in play and uh, that role in play more to the point so why have you decided jonathan to be trained in a spiritual tradition that incorporates kogi tradition in colombia as i explored the world really i mean i've been to probably 40 different countries and lived outside of new zealand for much of the last 20 years one thing i realized is most of the wisdom and the knowledge that i was coming across was in a sense second hand in the sense that it was no longer embodied by a culture by a people there may have been individuals who had a certain understanding of it who may have had a certain degree of realization within it but in essence they were like orphans cut off from the much bigger fabric out of which that original knowledge arose from so i always found there was a, a certain level of not quite dissatisfaction but just the sense that something was missing there must be someone somewhere that actually lives this as a as a whole way of life where that still happens the other thing i found is that in each tradition and religion and spiritual path that i looked at i would always recognize what i eventually came to recognize as the wisdom of the heart or the human spirit 
But then there was all this other stuff. And I never knew exactly where that came from. I just knew that it wasn't it. And sometimes that was the majority of what was there, and I may just take a small piece, and I'd be like, okay, this is this is something essential, and this other 95%, no idea where they got that from, but it's not it. It's something else. Through to traditions where, you know, there may be a lot more of the essential and a lot less of the inessential, but still coming from people that were somehow divorced from the full scope of what that knowledge really represents, of what that really means as a cultural experience. So in coming across the Kogi, and I first, let's say, vicariously met the Kogi through a documentary called Message from the Heart of the World, The Older Brother's Warning. And that documentary turned up at my oldest brother's place, my older brother, on a video cassette that was copied. No idea where it came from. Some friend dropped it off and said, you need to watch this to him. That was on a Wednesday or Thursday that week. That Friday night we were out partying and my other brother and I went back to my older brother's place that night. Woke up in the lounge in the morning on the couch bed and there was this video cassette and I said, oh, what's this? And he said, I haven't really seen much of it, just a few minutes, but let's watch it. So I watched that and that was where I first gained some insight into the world of the Kogi. I remembered in that point that I would meet these people and they would play a fundamental role in the work I'm doing in the world. And I say remembered because for me, memory goes both ways, past and future. It's not simply a past phenomena. So it was 21 years later. I didn't know exactly how that was going to come about. But 21 years later, I was actually in Panama, which used to be part of Kogi territory until the Americans stole it about 100 years ago. And I happened to meet a young man there who had been training with this Colombian shaman spiritual teacher for nine years and he had then moved to Panama to be in his home country that's where he was born and I just knew that I I have to meet your teacher and eventually that happened and and that's what propelled me into this work what I discovered through very quickly in this work is that I was suddenly dealing with a people an entire civilization of perhaps 15,000 people that dates back thousands and thousands of years where the entire culture all they do and all they live by is this ancient knowledge it's their whole way of life and they've fiercely and very particularly protected that knowledge because on some level they've known a couple of things amongst many one of those things is that someone on the planet has to be keeping the balance of the earth and that's what they've been doing and that's what they live for is to hold that balance of the planet whether we're aware of that or not the other thing is is that they were aware that there was so many people on the planet that were doing the opposite that were creating imbalance and that amongst younger brothers as they refer to most of humanity they refer to themselves as the elder brothers that amongst younger brother this original knowledge was basically lost or what was left of it had been so altered and so changed around that it was no longer of any real effect it didn't have any real positive benefit that was substantial so they knew they had a responsibility to one live this knowledge in order to hold the balance of the cosmos ultimately and two to hold that knowledge because Otherwise, it'll be lost, and and humanity will have a hard time getting a a living access to it again. So for me, meeting them and interacting with them and being trained by my mentor, it wasn't really a question in my mind. It was just, oh, this is what needs to happen. This is what I've, 21 years ago, I saw would happen. So it was all set up very perfectly. I've always been very cautious about really aligning with anyone or any tradition or any particular teachers, because for me, I've always noticed that There's elements there that I feel are out of alignment with the divine, with the ultimate truth. 
and I've always been very cautious to be linked with or, or tied up in any of that. So, I agree. So I've had somewhat of a, although I've travelled a lot and experienced to work with various teachers and traditions and so on, I've always had one foot out of the picture. <laughs> yeah. so, and one foot in mm. um, whereas with them there was just this instant knowing that oh this is exactly what I saw 21 years ago would be happening and, and I leapt into it with full heart and that's where I am today and so there up on the east coast sort of Caribbean Atlantic side of Colombia and on an area around about 17,000 square kilometres from the sea to the top of the mountain 17,000 feet where originally there used to be a lot of snow, there's not so much snow at the moment and it's causing a, a knock-on effect all the way down the mountain and this is one of the indicators of a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, is the whole ecosphere or the whole ecology of that mountain has been affected and, and this has raised their awareness to tell us younger brothers the rest of humanity that what we're doing to mother earth our planet is definitely not sustainable not beneficial and we have to make a major change in our existence yes that's one of the examples they give in the movie in the documentary although actually in working with them more directly my understanding is they're far more concerned about what's happening on the planet spiritually yeah. And for a Kogi mama, I mean, we need to realize the average Kogi mama will spend 18 years in training, most of that time in darkness, and only in the presence of other mamas, receiving the original knowledge and the whole understanding of the cosmos and how to be in a balanced relationship with that. So for them, the physical world is secondary to that spiritual world. And they refer to one aspect of that spiritual realm as the Aluna or Aluduna which in essence is like the mind of the mother just as we have to think something before we can put it into action there's a spiritual dimension that is like the mind of the mother what the Buddhists might call the void which if you get into Tibetan Buddhist tantric understanding there's the awareness that the void is in fact a feminine womb-like space and consciousness out of which everything is arising and ultimately everything passes back into so they have the same understanding they refer to that dimensionality as the aluna so when they look at the planet, what they're primarily seeing is what's happening energetically, what's happening in that spiritual dimension. Yet their understanding was that younger brother, so to speak, doesn't really understand the world in that way. So the example they used in the movie in that documentary was you know, to show how there's you know significant imbalance happening in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And for them, those mountains, they refer to that as Gonawindua, which always reminds me of the word Gondwana land. So Gonawindua is its own tectonic plate it's sort of a triangular shaped plate that is the highest mountains that go into the coast into the water and they see that whole area as the heart of the world and that within our luna there's literally threads of energy that are linking every major place of power energetic spiritual power around the planet to that place just as we have in our body the heart is actually the central system of the body more so than the brain I mean, you can be seriously brain damaged and actually there's examples of people that only have a brain stem, just enough to provide basic neurological input in the body and they're living. They have no interaction with the world, but they can live. You remove the heart, everything stops. So they see the heart as the essential centerpiece of, of the whole planet and that everything ultimately comes from there and returns to there. So 
whilst they were showing things that are happening ecologically and environmentally in that space, their main concern is what's happening spiritually. And part of their concern is that these threads that link everything up to the heart of the world are being damaged and cut and severed by a lot of our activities on the planet. So when we gouge down whole mountain ranges as we are doing around the world in order to mine things and we dam up big rivers and make lakes and and all these other sorts of massive activities and projects that we have, we only tend to look at what's the environmental impact of that. And in a very token sort of way, we might look at, well, it's minimizing the environmental impact and we'll do this in a clean way and so on. But what we're oblivious to is the spiritual impact. How does that affect the luminous body of the planet? So just as a human body is is understood in many traditions around the entire planet to have a luminous dimension to it, what we call the aura, some people see it literally with clairvoyant sight as an egg of energy around us. And that's not something we make up. That's You'll find that in just about every culture around the world, there's an understanding of that. So it's not something simply invented. So for them, the whole planet has a luminous body and it has a lot of filaments and all these strands of energy. And when we do things oblivious to that, but we're doing things to the physical world, we're also damaging that luminous body. And that's having a dramatic impact. And for them directly, what that means is, is that it's harder and harder for them to do their work. They see that all human beings, all human spirits, when we incarnate into this dimension, we come in with a very specific intention or what we might call an agreement to put it into sort of English human terms that our spirit makes an agreement with the mother of exactly what our function will be. And it's not something wishy-washy of, oh, I'm going to kind of generally explore painting or this or that. It's very precise. It's very detailed that these are the exact things I'll be doing as a spirit. This is my function. Just as a cell in your body has a very precise function and a heart cell can't kind of be half-hearted about it. It literally has to be a heart cell and if it starts exploring what it means to be a liver cell and then it goes and hangs out (laughs) and becomes a testicle cell, let's try that on for a while, the body's going to go into chaos. So they see that each human spirit comes into this new sphere that we're in, this, this atmosphere, the soul sphere of the earth, with a very particular function. So each of these places, these places of power around the world, also has a very specific function within the luminous body of the earth. And basically, from the heart of the world, to do their function, their agreement is to maintain the balance, is to hold not only the earth but the solar system, the sun, and the universe at large in balance. And that, again, that's an understanding that my research shows is across the board. We find that right around the world, that all ancient traditions, all ancient cultures, all had the basic understanding that human beings, the role of human beings, is to maintain the balance. The aboriginals in Australia were a recent example of that. Even if we go into the origins of Christianity and sort of our predominant religion in our part of the world, you know, if we go back to the book of Genesis, man is created and we're told you're here to keep the balance. You're here to look after the Garden of Eden, take care of it. Not to subjugate it and to use it as a resource, but to look after it. So they've been living that way. They've never stopped living that way. And one of the ways they perform that function at a practical level is by sending the energy of the human spirit down these filaments around to different parts of the planet. But if those get cut off, they can't send that energy anymore. So they basically can't fulfill their agreement. And for them, that's a devastating proposition because suddenly they're on the planet as spirits and they're not able to do what they're meant to be doing here. And that was one of the motivations for them to break basically nearly 600 years of living in secrecy 
human beings didn't know they were there anymore. They just vanished. Columbus came in and the Spanish came and for about 70 years they had interaction with Europeans until they realized that this isn't going well. We better get out of here. And they disappeared up into the mountains and over generations we forgot about them. So they broke that silence and broke that secrecy partly because they could no longer fulfill their purpose. And that was, that was it's important for them that we all do that. One of the fascinating things, Jonathan, I find is that they live for nine years or up to nine years or longer in darkness, in total darkness, in caves. Whether in that darkness, I mean, their imagination would be very, very different and to, to describe things, I guess. And then when they finally do come out into the world, it's like a rebirth again into this world of the outer region. But whilst they're in for nine years, their meditative state and any other thing relating to either telepathy or clairvoyance or even being able to move on to the etheric plane or, mm-hmm. a, and astrally travel, there is something there that nobody knows about. Mm-hmm. It is a, a very, very different cosmology we are now on the verge of learning from them. Yes, and that nine years is obviously, it's very linked in with the recognition of the nine months that we spend in a womb. And it's actually, generally for most mamas, it's two rounds of nine years, it's 18 years. Some of the mamas, one that, that my teacher's working with, it's 27 years. So it's probably the most rigorous form of spiritual training and initiation yes. I've ever come across. Yes. Um, it's not... 27 years of some stuff on the side that's all you're doing that's your full immersion you don't have any interface with the physical world during that time or very minimal so yeah naturally all sorts of abilities and things that in the western mind the western paradigm we write off is non-existent or impossible and yet all our traditions once again um, and I keep coming back to that because what the Kogi hold for us isn't something specific to them What's specific to them is the uniqueness that here's a whole culture that's actually kept all this despite all the madness that's played out on the earth, despite all the destruction, despite all the Christianization of all the native peoples and so on. They've kept this. But what they've kept is something that was world knowledge. It was the knowledge and the understanding of the people, we the people of the planet. So, yes, there's all sorts of skills and abilities and, and masteries that they have that for us would seem like something out of Lord of the Rings or you know something very mystical. And, and a lot of that directly relates to interfacing with the energetics of the planet, with the forces of nature, with divine beings and the ancestors of mountains and, and so on. They have a very living relationship with the living spirit of all things. So for them, I mean, you know, I see a mama if we're down on the beach, so they'll pick up a little stone or a shell. And for them, they're looking at a living, a living spirit that has intelligence, that has a function. And they immediately perceive what that function is. There's a relationship, there's a dialogue, a two-way dialogue that takes place. Whereas for us, a lot of these things seem like inert, just matter that doesn't really have any life to it. So animism is very much a part of it, even though that word is not really used. They make a connection. A river sings to them, the wind hums to them, but they can derive knowingness or information from everything basically because we're all part of the one yeah and everything is essentially constantly pouring out information that is informing us and literally informing us it brings elements of us into form 
So through that contact with the, the rich diversity of the natural world, there's this constant flow of information and it's a two-way flow that's taking place. And it's through that flow of information that they are able to be constantly aware of and aligned with what is it that the mother, as they would put it, is intending. You know, what's her workings in this particular situation? What is it she's navigating over here? What's being maintained over here? And then what's our role in that? What's our role of service to help maintain that? I mean, one example of that that came up, it's actually shown in the, the next documentary that's being released at the moment, which is called Aluna. In that documentary, Alan Herrera, who made both the documentaries, he speaks to a biologist and there's a few examples. One is that there was a huge sort of mega project that was changing the delta of a river that was going out into the Caribbean on the coast of Colombia. And the Kogi mamas were adamant that if the, if the developers did what they wanted to do down there, it would cause all sorts of disharmonies at the very tops of the mountains. And the environmentalists and ecologists looked at all that and said, well, that's impossible. This is thousands of kilometers away and thousands of feet away in terms of altitude. You know, maybe what we do at the top of the mountains might have an, a trickle-down effect here, but there's nothing trickling its way back up. And the Kogi mamas said, well, you don't understand. This here directly feeds energy to this, 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 and this. And if you cut this off, it's going to negatively impact all these things. The project went ahead, and sure enough, within a very short amount of time, the harmony and balance way, way up, a long way away. And then the tops of these mountains started changing. Avalanches started happening where avalanches had never happened, and rivers started changing their directions, and plant species started altering, and so on and so on. And they said, this is the direct consequence of what you're doing down there. So the, the biologists had to acknowledge that actually cutting-edge biology is understanding that everything's interlinked and it's totally multi-directional and that the Kogi mamas have an appreciation of this it's way beyond you know it's sort of we're taking baby steps in something they have a, a very powerful mastery of another example was there's a certain place for them everything has an origin much like in the uh, aboriginal culture my understanding there is for them everything is born from a certain womb so didgeridoo or yadaki for instance it's not something that man makes it's given birth to by a certain tree at a certain moment and they can just scan a forest and they're in the dream time and they will see oh that tree there's birthing a yadaki and they simply go up and take that branch cut it and it's already made it's already hollowed out everything's been done to it they don't really do much to it traditionally so in the same sense for the the kogi everything is being born from a certain place a certain space spiritually which is linked to somewhere physical somewhere in the geology of the earth so for instance there's an area where gold diggers and have for many years now been digging and digging and, and to try and find these gold pieces let's just call them that that the ancient basically the tyrona people had buried there and they'd buried them there to help maintain the balance of a certain species of bird because they recognized that that was the birthplace the spiritual birthplace of that bird and when that's out of harmony, that bird will be negatively impacted. So again, our biologists say, well, you know, what's this? this is just some sort of strange mysticism these people are into. But they are actually finding that with the disturbance of that area, that particular species of bird is having problems now and is starting to go extinct. And they can't see any other cause for this bird to start going extinct. And the Kogi mummers maintain the reason it's going extinct is it's being cut off from the womb that it arises out of. We're being spiritually destroyed in that place and therefore its spirit can no longer come into this world and take up a body. 
So these are some of the, I guess, for the mummers, there's always this constant appreciation of what's the intention of any given place or space, what's driving, what's behind it, what's the meaning behind things. Whereas in our culture, we tend to be cut off from that. Or if we do get into that, it's something very much on the periphery. It's something very superficial. And even as beings ourselves, one of the, the horrors of the mummers was to discover that younger brother, basically, most people on the planet have no idea who they are as a spirit. They have no idea where they came from as a spirit and no idea why they are here as a spirit. And for them, that's an unimaginable atrocity. It's just they can't comprehend possibly being on this planet in a body not knowing those three things with every cell of your being. You know, what is the intention that brought you and I into being? You know, what's pushing every moment we're basically leaving this realm and returning? Every moment the subatomic particles of this body are vanishing and reappearing. And there's some force of intention that keeps bringing them back into this particular configuration that we call Tim or that I identify as Jonathan. What is that intention and what's its purpose? What's the function that it has for this conglomeration of light and energy and consciousness and physical matter that we call you and I? That's right. Well, you see, a lot of challenge comes around. The fact that people don't recognize that we are spiritual beings having a physical plane existence. A lot of people deny the fact that we uh, incarnate as spirits into bodies. Well, we do temporarily. It's, it's, I mean, I often hear people say when there's a new child born, you know, they'll speak of this bright little spirit. Well, what a bright soul this is. So there's sort of this understanding at the beginning that there's something coming in, something arrives. And then when we die, we have a big funeral to see the spirit off. I mean, otherwise, why do we bother? It's just a dead body. It's a chunk of matter. But yet we still maintain this ritual of seeing the spirit off. So there's sort of this peace at the beginning, at the end, but then everything in between, we become oblivious. It's no longer a spirit. It's now just a personality and a whole lot of desires and aspirations and inspirations in, in this physical body. Consumers consuming themselves and walking desire bodies. This is what we, in many ways, have been programmed with. And we need to be able to learn how the Kogi are reminding us that we are really unique human beings. And not only reminding us of that uniqueness, but within what they call the original knowledge. The way they see it is that the mother, and I'll use those terms because that's the level in which they speak, the mother foresaw what would happen to human beings and foresaw the struggles that we would go through and the sort of opposition that we would face spiritually and how we would go unconscious. And for that reason, the original knowledge contains within it the tools and the means for us to not go off track, but if we do go off track, how to recover ourselves, how to piece ourselves back into our integral state of integrity as a spirit, having a human experience, and to come back into alignment with our origin, with our source, with the divine. So you'll find those tools, or I've found those tools, pieces of them here and there in different traditions and so on. But as I said, there's always this additional stuff, which the Kogi, the way they describe it, is that basically one of the ways we went off track is we started inventing things, just making stuff up. And here was this original knowledge that gave us the exact game plan of how to live in this world and how to maintain the balance of the universe, which seems like a grand task, but we need to remember that for the Kogi, the human spirit is one of the most powerful things in creation. They see that an active, living human spirit is more powerful than the sun. 
and actually we directly impact the sun with the way we use our personal energy. So it's not, you know, these little human beings wandering around like a bag of bones and flesh, maintaining the balance of the universe. It's an extraordinary, almost unimaginable (laughs) cosmic being that is literally an extension of the creator itself specifically for the function so that that energy of the creator can be right here in the physical realm and the densest aspect of reality and be a living presence here as us through us so one of the things that happened is and i won't get into the complexities of the cosmology behind all this but in very simple terms at a certain point in time we started turning our back on our origins and trying to make it on our own and we see this story you know, embodied in Christian literature around the idea of Satan or Lucifer, of this one of the highest angels that the Creator created, and then he decided to start just doing his own thing. For them, that archetypal story is quite accurate and sort of speaks about what's happening to the spirit of man. And so what they see is that one of the things we then started doing once we turned our back is we started inventing all sorts of stuff so this original knowledge started changing and being watered down and diluted and split apart to the point where it wasn't something useful anymore it was just became very superficial so they still hold that in its full form and therefore provide a means and and a methodology that really enables a human being to come to a position of knowing absolutely who i am as a being I'm speaking with Jonathan Evatt on the Koji who are in Colombia and South America and how they are communicating a message to we, the younger brothers, on how we can come back into alignment and purpose to restore our great sustainer, Mother Earth. His website is jonathanevatt.com. jonathanevatt.com. E-V-A-T-T dot com who I am to know those three things I mentioned before who I am as a spirit where I came from and why I'm here and that until we know that we're just sort of drifting we're like it's as if we're on a ship the ship being this body and the ship's out on the ocean and we sort of suddenly find ourselves at the helm of that ship and there's no maps or charts and we don't really know anything and we're just sort of drifting on the ocean and at some point we see in the distance a nice little island all right I'll pull the sails up and head over there and we have a bit of an adventure on the island and eat a few coconuts and dig up some taro and whatever else and maybe find some pirate caves and so on and then okay i'm gonna oh there's a map in the cave let's see what that's all about oh there's another island somewhere in the distance i'll jump back and go out on the waters but we don't really know what we're doing they're just kind of winging it basically we're spirits winging it in this dimension whereas from their point of view it was never intended that we just wing it it was intended that we know exactly why we're here and also that we're not solo agents that everything is to be done in sacred alliance and that that was the original intent so i find in our culture part of the divide and conquer mentality that's been playing out around the world for thousands of years now has come to the point where that division is happening right at the f- level of the family, where families are divided, and right at the level of the person, where we're divided and split within ourselves, which makes us all the more conquerable. And part of that division is that there's this very strong emphasis on individuality and doing things oneself and making something for oneself in the world. For them, that's it's a complete contradiction of how things were set up that actually the richness, one of the richnesses that we're missing in our culture is what it means to be in sacred alliance with other human beings and more to the point with other spirits, 
with the spirits of other people so that as you and I sit here right now, we're actually two spirits, vast cosmic forces of creation focused into these bodies, focused into this room, speaking through these microphones, but let's not forget what we really are. And then once we remember that of ourselves and of one another, that there's a richness of relating and relationship that becomes possible that's quite foreign to most people in our culture. And that relationship goes beyond just the spirit of other humans and the alliance with other humans, but the alliance with divine forces and divine beings, which for them are just as real as you and I are, and also with the ancestors and the spirits of the mountains and the rivers and the trees and the oceans and the lakes and everything else that we see in the natural world. Our position here in the world was to be in sacred alliance with the living intelligence of all of that. And to not be in sacred alliance with that for them kind of makes it impossible to do what we're here to do because we're just having to try and guess our way along and we're sort of just bumbling along and we make the best of it but for them even if what we do is the best of it if that's not what we agreed to do we've kind of wasted a lot of human energy and human potential the purpose for existence is to find out the purpose for existence and a lot of us as we can see, have lost our way. And yet once we come into alignment, we are the microcosm within the macrocosm, like little holograms. And if we can get all our holograms to actually align, we become one universal hologram. And that's when we all come home together. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yes. One of the interesting things is the Pirona, the original people of that area, they built quite vast cities. Mm-hmm. And how they built them, they built them in such a way that it's very good feng shui, that when water also ran down the stairways and, and round, down the roads, there was no erosion. And so everything stayed in one place. They had a good understanding of, obviously, vortices and how water flows. Mm-hmm. And that they know, too, that originally they go back and say that the Great Mother was water. And we know that memory is, can be contained in water as well. And so when we drink water, we can, if we are aligned, be able to get a message, just like homeopathy and many other things, too. So there's a huge learning for us to come back into alignment with the elements of nature natural forces and just being fully aligned and again a lot of that comes back to their connection with a lunar that by having direct perception direct spiritual sight of the workings of the mother it means that as a people and and whether it's the kogi or or the the tyrona or some of the other people that have descended from there that when they create something, they're doing that as an act of cooperation with the divine. It's not something done separate from that. So just as when the mother created the forest and created waterways and rivers and trees and root systems and bacteria and funguses and all these things that make up the biological mass of an environment and the intelligence of that environment, it all functions with a profound degree of balance and harmony and order and it's self-perpetuating and it has been doing so for hundreds of millions of years. So for the Kogi... When a human being goes to create something, we can either just do that because we invent a moment and we invent what we're going to make and we invent how we're going to make it and, and we just sort of make everything up. Or we can do that in direct relationship to the workings of the mother, that the creative dimension out of which all the intelligence of life of this earth emerged out of is not a thing of the past. Just as the aboriginals of Australia speak of the dream time, that everything pre-exists in the dream time. And... 
before time began, there was just the dream time, and that was all pervading, and that was all there was. But everything that we have in this world existed, so it wasn't that the mountains were created by some creator. They were given form, a physical form, but the essence of them already existed in the dream time, and so on and so on, to the point where everything was given form, and that was when the spirit of man descended into physicality, what in occultism or in other traditions you might refer to as the descent from sort of the Lemurian consciousness where things were very energetic into more of an Atlantean consciousness where things became more physical. And intellectual. Yeah, and also mentalized. That everything that the Kogi makes, so let's say the Tyrona make a city, they'll first attune to that within the Aluna and they'll co-create that with the mother as a spiritual phenomena. Then they'll go about the physical steps that are required to bring that into physical manifestation. Not as something separate and apart from the workings of creation, but as a direct part of creation, as an extension, as a co-creation. So in that sense, just as the tree in the jungle doesn't have to worry about sustainability, doesn't have to worry about how long it's going to be perpetuated for, its kind has been perpetuated for millions of years. It's not a concern for that tree because it's it's part of the, the whole intelligence of nature. It's not a separate individual thing that has to kind of battle it out on its own. And in the same way, you take a Tyrona city, that city is in the same position. It's as if the mother herself created that city in the same way that she created the tree and the river and the mountain. So therefore, the city will be naturally sustained. It's not going to deteriorate just as the tree doesn't deteriorate or the river doesn't deteriorate when they're undisturbed. So... It's because of that approach. It's a whole different cultural approach of one of co-creating rather than going out and making stuff up. When we make stuff up, everything that we've invented as, as Westerners and as sort of, uh, let's just call us younger brother, the whole, the rest of, most of the rest of humanity, but particularly the Western paradigm, all the technologies we have, they're totally dependent on constant maintenance. Making money. Otherwise, they break down. Mm. You know, so if we don't maintain our car, it will break down and eventually it can't fulfill the function that we intended to create it with. Whereas the things that nature or the mother has created, they're self-sustaining. And in some ways, that's how we can recognize what is real and what is unreal. What is of the mother, what has come from the womb of creation and what hasn't. Because anything that's come from the womb of creation will naturally perpetuate itself forever. And we may say, well, the tree eventually dies, but the living intelligence of that tree, both its DNA and genetics, but also more the spirit of that tree, the potentiality of that tree at an energetic quantum level, if we want to use that word, continues and reproduces and reproduces and the thing just keeps proliferating for millions and millions and millions of years. Whereas there's nothing that we've created that will do that. Even some of the ancient buildings coming out of Rome and Greece and so on, they're deteriorating and breaking down. Whereas, you know, in the pyramids in Egypt, they're deteriorating, breaking down. Whereas you can have these cities that the Tyrona have made thousands of years ago. And as you've pointed out, they're not eroding. They've, they're just perfectly in balance with nature. But that's because they're as much a part of nature as the tree is or the river is or the frog or anything else. Well, they were made as an, an organ, as an extension of the mother. I think that too. And they would see it as sacred. Mm-hmm. And have... It's having veneration, and a lot of us have lost that. And that's, I think, where we need to... We've got to come back and realign and recognise the breath as well. What I found fascinating with the Kogi is that they were war white, but they weren't interested in 
external stuff. No glitz, no glam. <laughs> Their realm was in the inner world, uh-huh. in the inner realm. And they didn't need to impress everybody with outer stuff because we are, are yet to find out the super richness of their inner tapestry, of how their inner landscape is. This, I think, is really, really fascinating because we just got no idea. Yeah, that's something I recognised very early on. The When I first went into this training, the mama that was working with us alongside my mentor was, I think he's 94 years old. He's sort of the grandfather of the mummers and little tiny man. He looks like a very simple little fellow. Yet every time he'd walk in the room, the first thing I'd notice is I'd, if I didn't stop myself, I'd, I'd just be in tears. There's just a sense of this immense purity, this immense heart space. It was like a walking, breathing human spirit. It was like a spirit walking around. And it became apparent very quickly that here was someone who is living in another dimension me from my perception in this dimension sure I can see this body and I can see the normal things that we call a human being but I was very aware that his perception was perceiving another dimension that when he would look at us he was looking at an energetic phenomena he wasn't looking at a bunch of bodies when he would look at any item or anything I could just sense with my own spiritual sensibility that he's perceiving something energetic primary and secondary to that is the physical so they don't tend to get caught up in physical things and, and they're not too... I mean, as I said, even their concern about the planet itself is not so much... I mean, they're concerned about what's happening physically, but far more important to them is, is what's happening spiritually. What, how polluted is the earth on a spiritual level? Because the physical pollution and destruction is only a, a shadow of that, is only a reflection of that. Yes, the yeah. greatest pollution on the face of this planet is essentially is between our ears... And what's inside our chest cavity? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned between the ears because one of the, the downfalls that they see or the, the failings of most human beings and of our culture is that we've had this tendency to, you know, and I'm translating from Kogi to Spanish to English, but basically to mentalize things, that we mentalize everything and that even in their, their greatest concern in, in teaching their ways is that we'll just mentalize it. And for them, the energy that the, of our spirit, which arises through the heart, is a very pure, high vibration. And as soon as we mentalize that, which means we start intellectualizing it and, and turning it into an intellectual construct, we degrade that energy. We start breaking it down. We start breaking it down and degenerating its purity. We start misqualifying it. And over time, we've basically mentalized everything to the point where even our relationship to the earth itself, it's something very conceptual. We have people sitting around in laboratories trying to figure out the, the, the magic of nature. We have people sitting around and basically in enclosed spaces behind computers and equipment and chemistry things and all the rest of it, trying to figure out the secrets of the universe rather than being out there as a living experience of the universe and directly perceiving the universe as a mama does. And, you know, one classic example of that in the the documentary Aluna, which is coming out, at one point they visit an astronomer in England who runs a big, what do you call these things, a big observatory. And he shows the mama a, a chart with thousands of little dots, obviously, of little stars on it. And... There's nothing on that. Basically, shows him this chart, and immediately the mama picks out one of those little dots and says, this is a sun, 
and it describes a whole lot of details about it. It's a single sun. It's not a bi because there's a lot of things in bi star systems and so on. Describes some facts about it that the astronomer knows. But afterwards, the astronomer points out that everything on this chart is completely invisible to the human eye. This was taken by a, a <laughs> massive telescope mm. that perceives things that we can't see with the naked eye. And the only dot out of all these thousands of dots that is a sun and is what he's described as that one dot that he picked out. And he was just mystified. How did he do this? How is he having this perception? So even with us, with all our equipment and kind of having this vicarious relationship with this planet, the second-hand relationship through tools and devices and so on and cameras and what have you, through their direct relationship, here's this mama with an understanding of things that are billions and billions of miles away, light years away, and has a knowledge of them, is interacting with them, that he knows the spirit of that son personally. He interacts with it. He has a relationship with it. And yet we can't even, we don't even know it exists without having some massive multi-gazillion dollar satellite telescope to look at it. Yeah, this is the beauty of it. This is, it just shows you the pure depth of being Mm. and the stillness within because it's only from this space can we then embark on our greater understanding, our greater journey. Yeah, it's being part of that rich tapestry of, of life, not as something secondary, not as something as we do as a hobby or an interest that, you know, I've still got my career and all these things that I'm interested in, but, you know, I've got a bit of spirituality I do and I've done a bit of this and that and I like to go for walks in nature, but it's still a very secondary experience part of what they bring to us is an understanding of what does it mean to actually make that your first hand direct moment to moment experience that you're in a living universe and and you're a part of that you're not separate from it and you're fundamentally dependent on it and it's dependent on you and this is one of the interesting things is that in the kogi cosmology and and again you find this around the world in various traditions their understanding is is that actually the universe depends on human beings that we literally maintain the balance of the universe. We are co-creators with the divine. And the reason the human spirit is so powerful is that 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 energy has a very massive function. It has a universal function. And there's this two-way dynamic, which they describe essentially as reciprocity. And they say that's one of the key things we forgot, is this dynamic of reciprocity, that everything that's ever come your way, whether it's a perception, a thought, a feeling piece of food, a sunset, a sunrise, a relationship, anything that you've had any perception or experience of, that came on the understanding from the divine's point of view that there was going to be reciprocity, that everything has to, just as as the Buddha say, everything emerges and it has to return to that void. In breath and out breath. Exactly. So we're a living experience of that. Our heart is pumping in and out, in and out. Our breath is a constant reminder that we're in reciprocity. If I suddenly decide, you know what, Tim, I think I'm going to claim this little seven liters of breath for myself and I'm going to hang on to it for the rest of my life. It's only going to be a matter of maybe 40 seconds, maybe a minute and a half before I start going blue in the face and I obviously realize my mistake. And then I've got to exhale and give that air back to the bigger picture. And then I can take in another one. So they see that that dynamic, that literal dynamic that any one of us can sit down and experience in an instant by just tuning to our breath, there's the immediate understanding of reciprocity, not as something mentalized, as something intellectual, not as a philosophy or a concept, but as a living experience that we've been doing since the day we were born. 
and that that first breath we take at birth is going to be perfectly balanced by the last breath that we take at death. (laughs) That we literally inspire or inhale in spiritus, the spirit comes in, and then at the end of our life we expire, expeditus, the spirit leaves, and, and there's the balance. So from their point of view, constantly, everything they're interfacing with, there's the understanding of reciprocity, of what I'm giving back of what I'm returning and not only what I'm returning but the quality it has so if we go out into a natural environment which is getting harder and harder these days but into native jungle there's this immense sense I know for myself of the rich profound purity and quality of what's around me I mean I have that particularly up in northern Finland or central Finland where it's just ancient forests and it's just this ultra pure when I was there last I was almost in tears just feeling like if the Divine Mother was walking on this planet and sort of felt like she'd had enough, she'd come and lie down here and relax because this is such a pure, quiet, still place. So the energy that we receive as spirits has this immense purity and richness and intelligence to it. And then it comes into us and it goes out in one form or another, whether it's our actions or our thoughts or our emotions or the things we focus on. One way or another, that energy is coming into us and pouring out of us. But how do I qualify that? Does it leave me in a better and richer condition than when it came to me? Or is it in a degraded state? And most of the time it's generally degraded because we've mentalized it and destroyed it and damaged it. The essence there is to come back to a place where all that we're receiving as spirits in these bodies, we're pouring that back into the realm of the mother and into her space, nature and so on with a higher quality, a higher intelligence to it, a higher state of organization and richness to it than what we received it. Then we're living on track. Then we're on purpose. Then we're fulfilling our agreement as human beings to be maintaining the balance and the order of of the living universe rather than degenerating it. And as a result, our vibes are lifted higher. Collectively, we all move into a state of being that for most people is unimaginable. And, you know, it's become very popular these days for people to be going to Peru and so on and taking things like ayahuasca and San Pedro and these sorts of psychedelic substances because they have suddenly an amazing experience of a perceptual direct experience of the rich intelligence of nature that everything's alive, that every stone, every pebble, every drop of water is living and breathing and pulsing with intelligence. And they have that experience because suddenly their heart's opened up and that's their perceptual, our primary mode of perception of the spirit is through the heart. We can live in that state or in some semblance of it constantly rather than having these sort of superficial experiences of it. It can be a moment-to-moment living experience that we're actually a rich part of the whole universe. We're not some free agent doing our own thing. We're actually an expression of the mother and the father creator. We are an extension. An extension. Like the fingers on the creator's hands. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you. Excellent, Jonathan. We look forward to maybe hearing from you sometime soon, telling us of your journey further. Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) That was Jonathan Evert of jonathanevert.com telling us how it can reconnect with a Divine Mother. You can listen to this program on planetaudio.org.nz slash greenplanet for the next seven days. An iPod and stream can be obtained six hours after broadcasting on greenplanetfm.com and holisticliving.co.nz slash greenplanet. 
You can follow Green Planet FM on Facebook at facebook.com slash greenplanet. Yes, come and like us. We love being liked. So have a look. Check it out. Very interesting. Okay, this is Tim and mobilizing consciousness and a better future for our children and grandchildren. Kia kaha and aroha.